fair warning, this next thing is going to be a little gross, okay? Take a deep breath. We'll all get through it. I want you to close your eyes and imagine this with me. There is more than one way to skin a cat. We've all heard that saying. And honestly, we don't really think about it all that much. But if we were to close our eyes and imagine that saying, uh, it's pretty gross, okay? It's, it's not that great, but we don't think too much about it because we know what it means. It means there's more than one way to do a particular thing. And just like that, we can get bogged down in the gruesome details in Scripture and yet miss the obvious meaning. Well, in chapter 3 of the book of Judges, there are a few gruesome details. We have three very different judges utilizing three different means to accomplish the same goal, because there is more than one way to deliver God's people. Hey, welcome to By the Verse. This is a podcast that is all about the Word of God. We take it chapter by chapter. I want to give a special shout out to none other than Loaf Doggy. I don't know if I'm saying that right. I hope I am because it's not only a great screen name, but Loaf Doggy wrote a great review of this podcast on Apple Podcasts. So I just want to thank you for doing that. I really appreciate it. If you haven't already taken the opportunity to rate and review this podcast, wherever you listen to this material, please do so. If you listen on Facebook, you actually have to go to the Buy the Verse Facebook page and you rate the page. You can't necessarily do it uh, on each episode. Well, in our last episode, we saw that Israel was rebuked by God because they had not followed all the instructions to drive out the people that were living in the promised land. They responded with what might be considered repentance, but it didn't stretch beyond their own generation. So let's pick it up in chapter 3, verse 1. Now, these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Beol-Hermon as far as Labo-Hamath, They were for testing of Israel, to know whether Israel would obey the commands of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. Well, in chapter 2, we noted that the angel of the Lord said that he would not drive out the inhabitants of the land because of Israel's disobedience. Instead, they would be left to test Israel. The same idea is further explained here. We can see from the passage that this was a double test. On one hand, the proximity of idol worship would provide Israel an opportunity to choose good or evil because evil would be all around them. 
On the other hand, we have a new idea introduced here. That is, by these groups of people around and the the friction that that would cause, that it would ultimately teach future generations of Israelites how to fight. Now, this seems odd, uh, given the fact that God's intention was to give his people peace in the promised land. Why would he want them to know how to fight? Well, sometimes we think that peace entails an absence of struggle. But in reality, there are times where we have to fight to maintain it. King David said, Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. That's Psalm 144, verse 1. God knew that Israel was a prime piece of real estate situated between Egypt to the west and a continual succession of future world powers to the east, including what would become Babylon, Persia, and Rome. Even now, Israeli citizens, uh, 18 years and older, are required to serve in the national military, albeit with a few exceptions, because Israel is surrounded by hostile nations. I mean, not much has changed in thousands of years. That should indicate to us that even though God's intention is to give us peace and to literally be our peace, that doesn't mean we won't have struggles and we won't have battles to fight. The enemy is not content to leave us alone. So we too need to know how to fight. Now, verse 6 tells us that the people intermarried with the inhabitants that were left in the land. This is a clear violation of Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3, which forbids them from intermarrying. We know that the writer here is referencing back to that passage because he listed the same nations in Judges 3 that are listed in Deuteronomy 7, with the exception of the Girgashites, which are listed in Deuteronomy 7. But God uh, here is not concerned about ethnic purity. In fact, he states why he is forbidding them to intermarry in Deuteronomy 7 uh, verse 4. It says, For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. That is exactly what we see here. In these times, a person's nationality was synonymous with their religious affiliation. So if you were Philistine, you served Dagon. If you were Ammonite, you served Molech, and so on. I mean, there was just very, very little uh, distinction between your ethnic background, your national uh, background, and the God that you serve. Now, interestingly enough, the story of Ruth is set inside the period of Judges. This is why often, if you see commentaries, they will include Judges and Ruth together, not just because Ruth is a small book, but Ruth, uh, her whole story happens within the context of the Judges period. Now, some believe that the book of Ruth begins during the middle of chapter 3 of Judges. Ruth is a Moabite who married a Jew, is widowed, and married another Jew. Now, none of this is a problem because we have her statement of faith to her mother-in-law, Naomi, that her people would be Ruth's people and her God would be Ruth's God. So she followed Israel's God so she could marry a Hebrew like Boaz and be in the line of King David and ultimately in the line of Jesus. So ethnic purity was not the issue. Purity of faith was the issue. 
Let's go on to uh, verse 3 in this chapter. Sorry, verse uh, 7 in this chapter. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenez, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. He went out to war and the Lord gave Cushan Rethiam, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rethiam. So the land had rest forty years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenez, died. Now, we already talked previously about Baals and Asherah, so we won't do that here. But the story goes that God sold Israel into their hands, which is another way of saying he surrendered them to Kashan. Uh, The idea is that instead of belonging to God, which comes with God's protection, God surrendered his ownership and allowed them to be owned uh, by this king. So if you are not willing to come under the authority of God, then he'll hand you over, surrender you, sell you to the authority of another. Then you can decide how it feels to be uh, under someone else and to have someone else as a master. Okay, so this king here is most likely not over the whole area of Mesopotamia, but perhaps a part of it. We're really not sure. What we do know is that Judah, where Othniel lives, is much further south uh, than where the, the, from the direction this king is coming from, which could indicate that this king had pushed through several tribes all the way down to Judah. Or it could just mean that Othniel was such a well-known figure. I mean, consider the story about him in chapter 1, okay? that he, Maybe he's just a well-known commodity, uh, and that's why God used him and people followed him. Of all the examples in the book of Judges, Othniel is the only one who exhibits all of the elements of the cycle that we've been talking about in the previous chapters. The people sin, they suffer, then they cry out. God raises up Othniel, God's spirit is upon him. He saves the people and the people have rest. All the other judges uh, in this book will miss one, at least one, if not several uh, of these elements of the story. So there's a real sense in which Othniel is the perfect or ideal judge. There's nothing negative that's said about him, not in what he does, not in his character. Every way that he is uh, figured in this chapter and in chapter one is very positive. Now, that is not at all true, really, of any of the other major judges that we're going to read about uh, in the story of Judges. Of course, there are six judges in the book that we know almost nothing about, you know, it just says who they were and that they were a judge, but there's no real story attached to them. But of the six major judges, I mean, Othniel is 
really the perfect guy. He stands in contrast to all of the other ones who had very serious uh, character and personal defects in some way. Now, verse 10 tells us that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. We haven't talked about that much yet, but we, uh, we see that in this book in several places. Now, in the Old Testament, the Spirit of the Lord came upon people, but he did not dwell in people. And that is a principal distinction between people of faith in the Old Testament and people of faith in the New Testament. We have the Spirit of God living on the inside of us continually, whereas they only had it upon them momentarily for very specific situations. The Spirit of the Lord enabled these Old Testament leaders to do things that they could never have done naturally or in their normal giftedness or skill set or wisdom. That should say to us that have this life in the Spirit as New Testament believers, okay, that the Spirit of God lives inside of us so that we too can do things and live in such a way that pleases God. It would be impossible to to do if it weren't for the Spirit of God. We can do and we can be what God wants us to be because the Spirit of God lives on the inside of us. So the Spirit of God is within us to empower us to do what we could not otherwise do in terms of living this life of holiness and knowing the heart of God and doing the things that please God continually and not just momentarily. So... Othniel leads the people into war. He wins. So the land had rest for 40 years, which is another way uh, of saying that the people had relative peace physically and spiritually. And then, of course, the cycle starts over again in verse 12. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, eighteen years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab, and Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man, And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols of Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool Ruth chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade. For he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. 
Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the Ruth chamber behind him and locked them. So here we have an example of some of the pattern, the people sin, so God punishes them by strengthening the enemy. Now that is different than what is said in the previous story, okay? Uh, the idea here is that God enabled, that's what strengthening is, he, he enabled the enemy to successfully conquer the people. So King Eglon was able to put together a coalition of uh, three different nations, his nation included, They were all enemies of Israel who had had battles with Israel, and he was able to oppress the people for 18 years. He was even able to capture the city of Palms, which is a reference to Jericho, and it's already been mentioned uh, in this book several times as the city of Palms, but it means Jericho. Now, notice the punishment in Othniel's time was eight years. Now, in Ehud's time, it's 18 years. The idea is that the punishment is a little more severe. I've heard it said that God uses a series of hammers to teach us a lesson. Sometimes he'll start with a little hammer. If that doesn't work, he'll get a slightly bigger hammer. If that doesn't work, he'll use an even bigger hammer until he finds the right one that rings your bell. So the people had been oppressed for 18 years by a coalition of people led by the king of Moab. And the hero of this story is an unlikely person. He's unlikely because he's left-handed, which in that day and age was considered a weakness. In our time uh, in America, we've actually had quite a number of presidents who were left-handed. In fact, six of the last 14 presidents uh, were left-handed. Now that we can only know from the 20th century forward uh, because before the 20th century, being left-handed was considered a defect. And so parents would force their kids to work right-handed. And so if there were left-handed presidents before the 20th century, we just don't know because they were all forced uh, to use their right hand. Now, in Israel at this time, it is it would have been considered odd. It would have been considered a defect, certainly not a positive thing for him. But the language here is actually a little bit stronger because it suggests that he was not able to use his right hand. So not just that he's naturally left-handed, but that there was something wrong with his left hand. It could be that his, le- his right hand sorry, was deformed or paralyzed. So the Bible is letting us know that this is no regular person, really, but this person is unique. He has a unique challenge in his culture. So Ehud's task uh, was to lead the group of people who would take tribute to Eglon. Now, you can consider tribute like royalties, taxes, a protection fee, all rolled into one. It was probably in the form of Uh, agricultural harvest, okay? So it would have taken several people to bring the tribute to this king. Now, Ehud was very crafty. The Bible tells us that he made his own sword that was double-edged. This sword probably did not have a crossbar on it, which would have made it easier to conceal on his right thigh. And likely because uh, he was obviously... uh, left-handed and and not able to use his right hand very well, uh, he would not have been considered a security threat. You know, he wouldn't have maybe received the same pat down 
that everybody else did because he looked more harmless and this worked in his favor. So after presenting his payment to King Eglon, the whole delegation left, but then he sent them on, he turned back, and he came and requested basically a private audience uh, with the king. And he told the king he had a message from God. Now, this word God that's used here is the very generic Elohim. It is not the very specific Yahweh. It's kind of like today when we just say God, which can mean everything, as opposed to saying Jesus, which is very uh, specific. I I was asked to pray at a public event Um, And I made sure that I just didn't pray to God. I made sure I prayed in Jesus' name uh, because that's very specific and it can't just mean whatever uh, you want it to mean. Well, here, Ehud just uses this generic term. And so maybe uh, it doesn't raise any red flags to uh, this king. And so the king calls him forward. He sends the attendants out And the message that Ehud has from God is not a pleasant one for the king of Moab, certainly not one he was hoping for. The message was a punishment for oppressing God's people, even though God was the one who allowed him to do it. Now, that's a conundrum for us. Uh, How can God punish people for doing things that he allowed them to do, even uh, strengthen them to do, which just means he, he gave them a greater capacity to be able to do it. But that's very consistent, actually, in Scripture. All throughout the history of Israel, God allowed people... Uh, to do things, uh, to basically oppress his people, to punish his people. But then after a while, God would punish those oppressors for the things that they had done. The idea is that God doesn't make people do anything, but he does allow people to do the things that are already in their heart to do. And then after they've carried out uh, the lust of their heart, their their power-hungry blood lust, well, then God rightly punishes them for it. Now, as I noted in the introduction to this episode, sometimes the Bible is just plain gross. And this is one of those gruesome uh, moments. Okay, so the king of Moab was a large man. Now, that is not to shame people who are large or who have struggled with their weight or their body image. I actually think that this is just an illustration that he had gotten fat off the land. You've heard that saying, okay, to, to get fat off the land. And it had been 18 years. Okay, so for 18 years, this man had been living large off the backs of God's people. And now that, that, that bigness, that living large is actually going to work against him. It's going to make him less able uh, to quickly defend himself. Ehud is able to reach under his clothes with his left hand, and he's able to push this homemade sword, which is about 12 to 14 inches long, all the way inside the king, probably at a downward angle. And the gross reality is that sometimes when people die, especially by surprise, they lose control of themselves. They relieve themselves. And even shortly after death, that process uh, continues. But I think this detail is here to really further embarrass this king for how he has lived and what he has done. So let's continue on in verse 24. When he had gone, the servants came 
And when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of uh, the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the door of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them. And there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man survived. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Now, this lock that's on the door uh, of these chambers is apparently the type of lock that you can lock without a lock, without a key, sorry, but you can't unlock it without the key, okay? So Ehud, uh, he locks the door on his way out, and the fact that uh, the king had relieved himself, well, maybe it made the room kind of smell like, you know, he was doing his business, and that explains maybe why the servants gave him more time. The door was locked. Maybe there was a smell. They gave the king a little bit more time until they just felt like, okay, something has to be wrong. We, we can't uh, keep waiting and waiting and waiting. We need to attend to the king. And they found him there dead. So now that Ehud has escaped, he's able to go and blow the trumpet. And it's amazing um, that once you've already... Sh- taken a great blow at the enemy, how people will follow you then. You know, they may not follow you before you've had some early success, but with the king of Moab dead, oh, now you can blow the trumpet and people will come out and they will follow you. And after they have this great victory, the land has rest, get this, for 80 years. So I said that the punishment went from eight years to 18 years. But notice that the rest went from 40 years to 80 years. So while God's punishment on the people may have increased the second time around, well, his grace increased even more. So while sometimes the Old Old Testament picture of God is of this angry, violent uh, God who's always punishing us, well, we can't overlook the abundance of God's grace that's all over the place in the Old Testament as well. Now, there's just one more verse in this chapter, so let's read it now, verse 31. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. Poor little Shamgar. Uh, He doesn't get much of an epic story here. But his story is still significant and important for several reasons. First off, we're not told where he is from or where his fight took place. What we do know is that his name is not a Hebrew name. Now, this could indicate that he himself was not a Hebrew. 
which would make him a very unlikely leader, it's probably likely that he was at least part Hebrew and that he was a result of one of these uh, mixed marriages. And so that's why he does not have a traditional Hebrew name. We're also told that he killed 600 Philistines. Uh, He did this without leading any kind of army. There's no army mentioned here. There's no troops. There's no epic uh, battle scenes of any kind. Here's a guy who killed 600 enemies with what amounts to a stick. That's basically what he had. An ox go at, if you didn't know, and maybe you knew when you read the story, but I didn't know. And so I had to go look this up. It's a long stick. It may have had a piece of pointy iron on it, uh, or it may have just been sharpened on the edge. And people use this when they drove their oxen. Sometimes you get a stubborn ox and he doesn't want to go or he doesn't want to go the way you want him to go. And so you need an ox goad to poke at him to make him obey your commands. And this guy went out and killed 600 people with a long pointy stick. Now that's a bad man, okay? Now in doing so, he saved Israel. Notice that the cycle is already breaking down. There's no crying out to God at the beginning of the story. There's no rest at the end of the story. And yet God still used this man in a a spectacular way to save Israel. Well, what is the takeaway from this uh, chapter, really? Here's what it is. Othniel was about as perfect a leader as it gets. Ehud was an assassin with a defective hand. Shamgar was no leader at all, but just a lone man acting on his own. Othniel had the spirit of the Lord. Ehud had a homemade blade. Shamgar had a pointed stick. And yet, they all accomplished the same thing, delivering God's people. It doesn't matter who you are and what you have or don't have. God can use you and what you already have to accomplish his purposes. So let him. Well, that's all we have for you today. On our next episode, we'll hop into chapter four, and that's where we will be introduced to a dynamic duo of deliverers. And I can't wait to walk with you through their story on the next episode of By the Verse.